It's my intention to return to the series uh, that we were doing in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, but I find myself uh, still in Isaiah, and there's really good reason for that because in Matthew chapter 13, where we we will resume that series, uh, Jesus refers to the text that we're going to look at today. Uh, He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, and so we're going to spend a couple of Lord's Days looking at this particular chapter, uh, because there is a lot packed in here uh, for us to discover. So uh, so it's my hope that we'll spend a couple of weeks with uh, Isaiah chapter 6, and then uh, pick up in Matthew 13 in that series. Uh, so let me read for our text just a part of the chapter, the first section of the chapter, verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 6. Let's hear this together as the Lord's word to us this day. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Well, as we begin looking at this text, considering this text, we want to notice the 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 way it is set, where it is put. Okay, it's it's not just coincidence that Isaiah identifies this vision of his with a particular time, particular time in his life, particular time in the life of the people of God, a particular time in the history of God's redemptive work on behalf of his people. In the year of the death of King Uzziah. Now, that name's not very familiar to us, but it would have been very familiar to the people of Isaiah's day. Uzziah is one of the longest reigning of the kings of Judah. And in many ways, his, his kingship was a good time for the Jews, a good time in Judah. In fact, it could probably be said that, that the years 
that Uzziah reigned were the best years that Judah had since the days of David and Solomon. So, so that in itself makes it significant. Also significant is the fact that he reigned for a long time. He became king at the age of 16. Now, some of you young people like to become king. The age of 16. And he, he lives then 52 years after that as king. Uh, a whole generation grew up knowing him as the head of their government. Phenomenon that would be very strange to us with our frequent changes in government. So for those reasons, it's significant, but I, but I think there's more, more to Isaiah's reference to Uzziah here than, than just that, than just the politics, the economics of the age. Because when Uzziah dies, he is not buried with the other kings in the royal cemetery. And to my mind, that has to be on Isaiah's mind. Some people think Isaiah was royalty himself, that he was related biologically to the king. But even if he was not, the reason why Uzziah is not buried in the royal cemetery would have weight and significance. When the writer of Second Chronicles, under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, chronicled the history of Uzziah, he, he started out by saying good things about him. Reading from Second Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah, also called Azariah, by the way, uh, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Why do you think, wow, that's, that's a great commendation. Uh, but you better listen a little more carefully there to that last clause, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And if you look back at the former chapter, chapter 25 in Second Chronicles, you read that Amaziah is 25 years old when he became king, reigned 29 years, gives his mother's name. Then it says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, exactly what's said of his son Uzziah, yet not with a whole heart. Yet not with a whole heart. He was a half-hearted believer. That's the pattern his eye follows. So he starts out well. We're told that Uzziah, 
uh, set himself to seek God in the days of the priest Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, the chronicler tells us, God made him prosper. God helped him militarily. He defeated Philistines, defeated Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Meunites. He subdued the Ammonites. He became, the chronicler tells us, very strong in a political and a military sense. He goes on to talk about his building projects, his fortifications of Jerusalem, his 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 uh, agricultural projects. He loved to he loved the soil, and and so he 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 had all kinds of improvements made in the agriculture. He had a standing army that was impressive. Army of three hundred and seven thousand five hundred, in fact, who could make war said with mighty power. His fame spread. Even to other countries, even down in Egypt, they heard about this king and were impressed by his power and by his success. But, the chronicler tells us, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Do you see what he's doing there? Azariah or Uzziah has decided that, well, what's good for the other kings is good for me. Other kings, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, they lead the worship of their people. So why shouldn't I? And so he takes it upon himself to enter the temple to burn incense. And you, you know already what he's doing wrong. He's usurping the role of the priest. Because God had purposely divided responsibilities for leadership among his people between the priest, the kings, the prophets. And they were not to trespass on one another's authority. And so he, as a non-priest, is daring to enter into the temple, and a confrontation occurs. I mean, picture it in your mind. Here is the king in his royal robes with his entourage, taking some kind of incense pen to burn Incense, he's going to take a coal from the altar and put it on there and burn incense, and he's going to offer prayers for the people. And Azariah, the priest, hears about it and goes in after him with an entourage of priests and says, No! Stop right where you are. It is not for kings to burn incense. He says, it is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. And Uzziah is angry. 
His face flushes. And he's about to speak. And suddenly he realizes that everybody has, ha has taken a step back and is staring at him aghast. And someone says, look, leprosy on the king. Leprosy is broken out on his face. And in terror, he rushes out of the sanctuary, lest something worse happen to him. And he lives the rest of his life outside of Jerusalem. Because lepers are quarantined. So he lives till his death quarantine away from his own capital city. And even when he died, his body couldn't be taken back in to be buried in the cemetery, the royal cemetery. Interestingly, by the way, we actually have archaeological testimony to that by now. One of the more interesting discoveries of archaeologists in recent decades was the discovery of a plaque that, that someone found in a monastery in Jerusalem. And on the plaque in classical Hebrew script was written, here are the bones of King Uzziah. They're not to be disturbed. In the year of the death of King Uzziah, Isaiah has a vision. Vision of the holiness of God. I saw the Lord, he says. I saw the Lord. He uses the... the the title there, Adonai, Sovereign. Lord with a capital L and lowercase letters in, in your Bibles, most likely. Now, we know that human beings, we human beings in our present state, we cannot see God in his essence. This is not somehow contradicting that teaching in Scripture. Okay, so... So this is not somehow showing us an error in the scripture that, that or an error on Isaiah's part, okay? He is not claiming to have seen God in his pure essence. But in the history of his redemptive work, God has been pleased. He has chosen to reveal aspects of his being and character to his people in, in ways that they could understand. He, 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 as it were, reveals himself in a veiled sense to human beings who could not stand, could not bear to see him in his essence. But, but those, those veiled 
revelations, those visionary images that he gives, are nonetheless truly revelations of who God is. So Isaiah is right to say, I saw, I, I perceived, I viewed the Lord. Have you seen the Lord? Have you seen the Lord? Surely, that should be the greatest desire of us as his people. To see the Lord. To see our God and our creator. So it has to be with great passion and feeling that Isaiah speaks and writes these words. I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. There would be those who resist his word. In Isaiah chapter 30, he is told to write his prophecies. And he's told to write them because the people are rebellious. They say to the seers, that is those who have revelations from God, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. The human race in its sinfulness does not want to see God. They don't want to hear what's right. Rather, as Isaiah 30 goes on, they, they say things like this. Speak to us smooth things. Don't give us hard words. Prophesy illusions. Give us fantasies. Make us feel good. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Well, you, by God's grace, not in that position, you want to see the Lord this morning, don't you? Well, I invite you to see him with Isaiah in this passage. Okay? Let's, let's see the Lord together. What's the first thing that Isaiah says that he sees in regard to the Lord? What does he mention first in his description of his vision of the Sovereign One? I saw the Lord. What comes next? Seated on a throne. You see that there? Let's take these. Step it Sitting upon a throne. Immediately, we're told the setting is a throne room, a palace. We've entered a palace. The Lord is ruling. He is at rest on his seat of authority. He is triumphant over his enemies. He is not at war 
He is residing as unequaled sovereign. Isaiah is not the only one who who was given a vision of God sitting on his throne. Can you name uh, another Old Testament prophet and a New Testament prophet who had visions of God sitting on a throne? John. John, the prophet of Revelation. And from the Old Testament, who saw the Ancient of Days take his seat in a vision? Daniel, Daniel. God is enthroned. He is ruling as king. We'll come back to that later on in the vision. Well, what does Isaiah notice about this throne? Or what might we say about the Lord as he sits on this throne? I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. High. And lifted up, exalted, raised up. Now, now, of course, this is not not merely a, a, a physical, a spatial thing that's being communicated here. Remember, all these images uh, are reflecting a reality. Okay, the throne reflects the reality that God rules as sovereign. The fact that it is elevated in Isaiah's vision means that. God himself is exalted, not, not merely in a spatial sense, but in terms of his holiness, in terms of his majesty, in terms of his righteousness. Isaiah mentions this in a number of other places. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 5, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. That's a, a spiritual lesson that he's pointing to there. Isaiah 52 Speaking here prophetically of Christ, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Isaiah 33, going back again to what follows from his exaltation, his being high, the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And of course, we could, we could go into the book of, the, of Revelation and, and see that image of God enthroned in Revelation chapter 4. And, and notice the glory and praise that is ascribed to him there. So God is exalted as king. He is exalted in his holiness. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the next phrase is a very interesting one, isn't it? The train of his robe filled the temple. He... You notice Isaiah never describes a physical body here, right? It's as if, as if he's just seeing the, the very bottom, as it were, this manifestation of God. It's similar to experience of the elders in Moses' 
in Exodus in that regard. And so, so he sees in this visionary temple that he, he, he's saying this large room, it's filled with the hem of his garment. The, the hem of a priest robe had bells and pomegranates and embroidered on it. I don't know if he's seeing something like that or not, but, but obviously here too is that idea of the immensity, the awesomeness of God. He is not confined to a room. It's as if he, his footstool is there in the, in, in the temple. And in fact, many, many people think the Ark of the Covenant is representative of a footstool. And so just the very footstool of God is, is envisioned here. His majesty, his glory, his power, all that is communicated here. But, of course, that's not the climax. And so we need to rush on to look at the seraphim in verse 2. Literally, that word means burning ones, fiery ones. Uh, we're not told very much about their appearance, but it's interesting that that particular term name is given to them because, of course, the image of fire conveys the uh, the the ideas of light and purity, and so it's it's fitting in this vision of God. The seraphim are these burning ones. They have six wings, perhaps to communicate the idea of speed and power. But notice what they're doing with their wings. Two, they cover their faces. Two, they cover their feet. Two, they fly. Why covering their face and feet? Their face and their bodies could be what's meant here. Of course, it's the glory of God. And who are they as mere creatures? To, to behold the glory of God, unveiled as it were. And so they worship they worship. Verse 3. Sort of the heart of the worship scene, the climax of the worship scene here. Verse 3. They call out to one another. They're singing, I think. It's natural for those who worship God to sing to one another. And that's what we do when we gather for worship. I think that's what's happening. They're, they're singing together to one another, perhaps antiphonally, the praise of God. They address him as Yahweh of armies, Lord of hosts. We're not accustomed to that word host as much, but literally it's armies, okay? God is the commander of the armies, not only the heavenly armies are in view probably here, but since he's using the covenant name of Yahweh that he gave to his people Israel, the commander of the armies of Israel as well. He's commander of the armies, both heaven and earth. Yahweh, the covenant God, is the one whom they're addressing. 
the one, and, and we can read that second phrase there in the verse, you can, you can read it as either present or future, you can read it as a declaration, or you can read it in the imperative sense. The, the Hebrew allows that, so we could say that it's saying the whole earth is full of God's glory, which certainly is true, it reflects the glory of God, but they could all, this could also be a prayer. They could be saying, may the whole earth be full of your glory. And that is often the prayer of God's people. We've got a bunch of text here, but I won't go to it, where God's people are praying that his glory would be extended to all the earth. So both truths, of course, are right. But really the most important thing is, is that threefold refrain, isn't it? In Hebrew, when you want to use the superlative, when you want to talk about the best, you double a word. So in Hebrew, for instance, if you come across a reference to gold, gold, well, you don't translate that. They had gold, gold. You, you say they had the best of the gold. Okay, it's a superlative. And here, Isaiah is inspired to push that superlative beyond what it normally does with this threefold attribution to God. He is holy, holy, holy. This is not said of any other attribute of God. We never read that God is justice, justice, justice. We never read that he is love, love, love. He is holy, holy, holy. To see God, you must see his holiness. Now that this word holy carries the, the basic idea of, of separateness, of, of something in a class by itself. And that certainly is part of the meaning here. But, but we want to make sure that we include the moral component, the spiritual component to holiness here as well. His holiness is not merely a holiness of separation. It's a holiness of goodness, of righteousness, of justice, of all that is right. God is holy, holy, holy. He is a holy God. There is nothing about him that is unholy. And so the seraphim are focusing on that in their worship here. And evidently it's an exuberant worship because Isaiah feels this temple shaking. And the house is filled with smoke. Of course, that's reminiscent. We could go back and read of the glory of God filling the tabernacle and filling the temple when they were dedicated. Marvelous worship scene. What it must have been 
for Isaiah to have this vision. We can only imagine. But, verse 5 tells us there's a problem, right? Woe is me, Isaiah says. Now that, that word woe is, is an expression of grief, of mourning, even despair. It's found on occasion as the prophets are pronouncing a word of judgment. And they're saying woe because the wrath of God is about to fall on a people. So they use it in that sense. In fact, we see, we see this used in a prophetic judgment sense in the New Testament as well. Who is the prophet that most, of, most often in Scripture is recorded as calling out a woe on people? We saw it in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus. More than any other prophet, we hear the woe, word woe coming from his mouth. as he pronounces judgment on people. Well, what's really unusual here, I mean, Isaiah uses woe in that sense a couple of times in his book, but he's using it about himself, right? Woe is me, a curse is mine. The wrath of God is falling on me. And there follows a series of causal clauses Introduced by the word for. Why is he crying out woe? Let's quickly go through them. For I am lost. I am destroyed is what that word means. I am undone. Some people have said the image here is one of disintegration. I am, I, I am going to disintegrate. <laughs> Why? For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And the emphasis in the text here is on I, a man of unclean lips, am I. Among a people of unclean lips, I live, Isaiah says. Interesting that he, he focuses on the mouth, isn't it? And I'm, I'm not sure what the definitive reason for that is, but, but it seems to me in the context that what he's saying is, I, I see this incredible worship happening with, with these holy beings worshiping a holy God, and I can't join. I, I am unworthy to take the Lord's name on my lips. I, I think that's what's being communicated here. I, I'm left out of the worship. My mouth is unclean. Of course, that will, that will figure especially poignantly when we think about Isaiah as this prophet who's supposed to speak God's word, right? It's 
So at the very center of who he is, his identity as a prophet, he is unqualified. And of course, what he's saying there is, I'm a sinner, right? I am destroyed. I am a sinner. And the last four, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. For sinners, what's called the beatific vision is a curse. To see the real king, Yahweh of armies, is to encounter the one whose kingdom they resist. The problem, of course, is sin. When you see the holiness of God, you will always be made aware of your sin. I, I, I know we as human, human beings, we don't like to talk about sin. We don't want to hear it. I had a woman tell me in my first pastor, I don't know why you keep talking about sin. We're not sinners. And she said it with a straight face. But if you've seen the holiness of God, if you've seen even a tiny bit of the holiness of God, you know you are a sinner. Isaiah, verse 5, is helpless and hopeless. He's had this vision. He's realized his sin. He's under the wrath of God. So what does he do to save himself? Trick question, right? <laughs> he can't. He makes no attempt. He knows he has no basis upon which to, to plead his case. He simply acknowledges, I stand under the judgment of God. But God acts on behalf of his frightened little prophet. Because, of course, it's obviously the one on the throne who's directing the seraph, right? And so we see that vivid image in chapter, in verse 6 there. One of the seraphim is taken with tongs, a coal from the altar. There's debate about whether it's the altar of burnt sacrifice or altar of incense. I think either way, the image is the same, ultimately. And he takes that burning coal and he touches it to Isaiah's lips. Can you imagine that as he feels the searing pain and smells his own flesh burning? But what's important is the meaning of that action, isn't it? 
We have the word of the seraph that explains to Isaiah, okay, this is what this means. Behold, that's listen or look, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged or better yet atoned for. It's the word atonement there. There is atonement for sin, Isaiah. There is a way for your mouth to be cleansed so you can join in that heavenly worship. And a merciful and mighty God made that way. This is the gospel, isn't it? <laughs> this is the gospel that a holy God made atonement for sinners like us. That we can look forward with anticipation and joy, not just to worshiping on Sunday, but to worshiping in the very presence of God because he has made atonement for our sins. And you know that was not cheaply bought. But that the Son of God himself suffered the wrath. Isaiah was the one who should have been destroyed. I Isaiah was the one who should have been punished. He is the one who should have borne the curse, suffered the wrath of God, but instead... His Savior stood in his place, took the punishment that belonged to him. This is all, all of grace. A real vision of God will lead you to grace. We're not left in despair. <laughs> we're not left crying, woe. No, we're left crying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That a holy, holy God would extend salvation to us, would cleanse us, Isaiah is now able to sing praises to God. He is now able to, to preach God's word, not because of any holiness in him, but because of the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. Are you resting in that cleansing power? Are you not putting any confidence in your flesh, but wholly leaning on Jesus Christ? That's the message of the gospel. Not up to your efforts, never has been, never will be. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. And that's the freedom then that you're called to live in, to minister in. Now Isaiah is ready to serve God. And when you've received the grace of God, then you're ready to serve God in your work, in your home, in your relationships with other people. This is your confidence 
not trusting in your own goodness, your own wisdom, your own expertise, but constantly reminding yourself God has redeemed me in Jesus Christ. And so he's made it possible for me with, with these hands and with this mouth, with these feet, to bring glory to him in, in my daily life. To, to fill the earth with his glory through our worship and our obedience. Let's pray together. Only Father, we long to see your name glorified. We, we look forward with such anticipation to being in your presence and rejoicing in who you are. Uh, give us a foretaste of that even now. May we know the truth of your gospel, the, the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And may we, may we know that cleansing of our minds and our hearts and our lives that then enables us to seek to glorify you just through the ordinary tasks of our lives, doing them as unto you, however lowly they may be and trusting that you're working in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.